Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It's a great collection of literary sites that you can advertise on. Do you have a message you want to get out to book people on the internet? Go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Paris Review, Electric Literature. Uh, the list goes on. Litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for literary type human beings. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host... Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, you guys. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to the Other People Podcast, the Other People Program. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I have Garth Risk Holberg on the show. His novel, City on Fire, one of the biggest books of last year, national bestseller, critically acclaimed, available now in trade paperback from Vintage. And uh, very pleased to have had the chance to speak with Garth and to get to share that conversation with you. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. Uh, I am, what was I going to say? I forget. Oh, I was going to tell you that uh, I'm sorry that the podcast is delayed by a day. I was traveling over Labor Day weekend. I was in Green Bay, Wisconsin with my dad. My dad and I went on a uh, father-son outing. We went to see LSU, Wisconsin at Lambeau Field. My dad is from Louisiana. Uh, some of my relatives, cousins, uncles met us up there. We went to uh, Lambeau Field and saw the game. We watched uh, collegiate student-athletes get brain damage for entertainment purposes. Uh, another thing that happened is that I got to go. I should say I was born in Wisconsin. It's the state of my birth. I was born in Milwaukee, and I got to go there for the first time in 23 years. I have not set foot in the state of Wisconsin in 23 years. And uh, we drove. Uh, we did a quick drive through the uh, little suburb north of Milwaukee where I grew up. And I got to see it for the first time in 23 years. That's an odd experience. I spent basically the first 10 years of my life there in that house, in that neighborhood. And I hadn't been there in 23 years. And then suddenly I was there. It was kind of like time travel. It's like being dropped in the past.
It was beautiful. It was perfect weather day. I don't know if it's because I have very fond memories of growing up there or if it, if it really is that pretty, but it was just, Wisconsin was beautiful. Sort of validated my memories of it. And, uh, what else? A lot of drunk people at Lambeau field. (laughs) It's like, it's one thing if there's a college student who gets loaded, pukes in the bleachers, it's another thing if it's like a 55-year-old woman. You know what I'm saying? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Garth Risk Hallberg. Uh, his novel, City on Fire, about as good of a debut experience as uh, an author can hope for. It's a, it's a big novel and uh, a big success. And it was great to get a chance to talk to him as the paperback rolls out and to hear his thoughts on his book and uh, his life and more. So here he is, folks. This is Garth Risk Hallberg. <laughs> Our division of the Buchanan clan in Scotland are, are the risk. I think we were like the cannon fodder for the Buchanans. You know? Yeah. And maybe that's where the name comes from. It's just and in those risks. You know? So that was, so it's a family name. That's it. It is. And weirdly enough, um, there is another guy named Garth R. Hallberg who is slightly older than me and who I believe has written a couple of books um my sister like alerted me to this about 10 years ago i think i'd like published a short maybe it's 12 years i think i published a short story without using my middle name and she tried to google me and came up with the other guy so i just uh, i just decided you know for purposes of google disambiguation plus that you know i i have a fondness yeah. yeah, if my middle name was Theosophus, I might not have <laughs> right. done that. It's, but, a, uh, it's a good, it's a good middle name. It's memorable. Listy's a Listy's a pretty um, distinctive last name. I would have thought the odds against there being a Garth Hallberg were actually pretty high. But um, you know, if you were like Brad Johnson, you might you might throw your middle name in there. Yeah, Brad is troubling to me. Brad seems to me the antithesis of a literary name. Um, if there is such a thing, like I've always had, I've always liked my last name quite a bit, but have uh, deep, deep reservations about my first name. What would you, what would you choose as the kind of ultimate 
literary handle. Oh God, I don't know. Like just something, you know, John, Henry, William. You know what I'm saying? Just something like uh, it doesn't need to be anything super uh, unique or unusual. It just needs to be something that's like not Brad or Chad or <laughs> you know. I don't know what this name. I don't know. There's something about I've Shit. talked. I've talked. Yeah, I've talked about this before on this show. So I don't want to. Um, I don't want to hammer it too hard, but it's like growing up, if your name is Brad and you're paying attention to the culture in movies and television shows in particular, if there's a character named Brad, uh, he's almost always a douchebag. Like it's a cultural signifier for a certain type of person. And so very rarely is there a character in a cinematic or televisual fiction who is not, who is named Brad, who is not uh, an unsavory character in some way. And so that's the association that's, that I've made. That's true. But, you know, I have certain asso- associations with Herman, but it seems to have worked for Melville. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I, yeah. I mean, I, like, but how often do you see a Herman? You, you yeah. got to, you know, you, you just got to, you've got to own it. You've got to be the literary Brad. <laughs> going to be the literary. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to change things slowly but surely. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give the name a better name, but, uh, I guess like what I want to know about you um, in particular because of, uh, you know, how deeply invested your novel is in New York City is to know where you're from. I mean, you don't sound like somebody who grew up in New York City. Is that correct? Yeah, I scrubbed my uh, my Greenpoint accent. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm from um, I'm from North Carolina. Okay, Um, Half of my family is from. Uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, like the deep south. No shit. My parents are from Louisiana. Whereabouts? Like uh, my mom's from outside of uh, Baton Rouge in a town called Plaquemine, and my dad is from Morgan City, which is like deep south Louisiana, down in like. And are your are your people? Did they come through this flood thing? All right. Um, you know there uh, there's been some damage, but not as bad as Katrina. Like my cousin lost her house in Katrina. Um, you know, I've been looking, this is how, you know, this is the way of the world these days, but like, I've been getting a lot of it through Instagram. You know, there's definitely a lot of flooding in neighborhoods near where my relatives live, but, um, I haven't heard of anybody losing their house or being totally flooded out, which I imagine I would have by now had it happened. And you don't have, you don't have a, an accent. No, I was raised in the Midwest. My, my parents are from the South. My entire extended family for the most part lives down there, but, um, we were like the anomaly. My, my dad took a job that you know, led him out of the South and into the great white North, you know? So I was in Wisconsin and, and then Indiana for most of my childhood. So my, I was born in, uh, in Denham Springs, which I think is in Plaquemine parish. Um, and which apparently got really, uh, you know, hurt pretty bad in, in all of this stuff this last few weeks. But, um, we moved to North Carolina when I, when I was three from Baton Rouge and, uh, but my dad's from Ohio. So he's, which I think he's got the he had that sort of accent that they train broadcasters to have, you know. There's like a certain zip code where they're like, "We want you to sound like these guys." Oh right, um, like in Columbus. Like Columbus is like I think it might be near Columbus, which is sort of known as like the representative sample of America somehow. Exactly, and somehow that sort of canceled out, you know, between that and and Louisiana, like canceled out to to erase most of those. Um, verbal traces although my sister has she has a kind of a a draw i think i used to have a little bit of a draw i missed it but where, where in north carolina were you uh were you raised so i was raised in a a little town called greenville um at that at that point it really felt like a little town 
which is in the, the coastal plain um, between uh, sort of halfway between Raleigh and the beach, this big flat kind of like tobacco growing area. Um, and when I was a kid, the town was probably, I think the population was like 18 to 20,000. And then there was a transient population um, of students at the local state college, which is East Carolina, um, which is where my dad taught. And so that added another maybe 15,000 when school was in session, but it really didn't have the feel of a college town. It sort of felt like one of those towns that just springs up because, you know, Hey, we've driven a while without a town. Like let's have one here. <laughs> um, so what did your dad, what, what did your dad teach at uh, East Carolina? He taught English. Oh, he did. Okay. So son yeah. of an, son of an English professor. Yeah. yeah. Son, of an, son of a novelist actually. Oh, well, okay. Um, well, even better. Yeah. It, well, I'm not sure. If it, I'm not sure if it is. I go back and forth. It's like, is my whole life some strange, you know, kind of Oedipal, um, predetermined path or not? But um, it was a very like, you know, BMX bikes and uh, swatting mosquitoes and you know, uh, reading pornos in the woods. Kind of <laughs> sounds kind like of, sounds ideal. <laughs> Um, you know, there are probably people for whom it was, uh, ideal and I'm, you know, I'm raising my kids in this very different setting and there are things that I didn't fully appreciate about my childhood, um, until I saw that they were absent from my kids. Um, on the other hand, uh, I had this, I don't know, I I had from a fairly early age, I kind of fish out of water feeling there. And I'm not sure I, you know, I've done a fair number of interviews at this point and kind of tried to figure out what that is and whether, whether I want to tell anybody about it. But, um, but I remain like kind of mystified by that. I just kind of felt like I'd been, drop down in the middle of this landscape. Like I had, you know, I had lots of friends, we had lots of fun, but for me, I just, I felt like I belonged somewhere else. And so my early encounters with New York and with cities more generally, um, came through books, came through, uh, tales of a fourth grade, nothing, Harriet, the spy from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley, Frank Weiler, and, uh, you know, reading was this incredible escape, this kind of incredible opening for me into another world. And uh, I was a very passionate, you know, almost devotional reader from uh, about first grade on or maybe earlier. And a lot of the fantasy kind of universes that I love to live inside were not real and were the possession of you know, the author who invented them, but New York seemed to me like this place that was every bit as fantastical as middle earth, but somehow, you know, was shared across books and I could find it on a map. And it was also where, you know, you open up the copyright page and it's where so many of the books come from. And I just thought, shit, that must be (laughs) the best place on earth. So I had I had the kind of you know city itch um, from a 
a pretty early age. And then to get to the point where you want to write about New York, um, that I can understand. You know, there seems like a direct line, and, and it doesn't seem like that far of a leap. But to, to do it in the context of uh, historical fiction, to go back to an era that I think even slightly precedes you, or at least part of the book slightly precedes your arrival because you're 37. Um, what was it about that era? You know what I'm saying? Like, how did you arrive at that point? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I mean, so just to, to quibble a little bit, I, I just never thought of it as historical fiction. Um, I, you know, I remain sort of, as I understand the genre, you know, like Flaubert writing Salambo or something, you know, something I just, I wasn't thinking about it that way. Um, I started coming to the city in the mid nineties as a teenager, um, as a, as like a teenage, you know, I'm going to just take the scare quotes off and I'll, I'll just lay it out there, but know that I, you know, relating this with a certain degree of irony, but I was like, you know, it's like a teenage, like Rambo Monkey. Um, I really like by that point, like I felt really out of place where I grew up. I felt really desperate for something else. I was starting to do all kinds of things that, you know, to, to kind of, I don't know, bridge the what David Mamet talks about is like un unhealable you know divide between the conscious and the the unconscious or something I was doing all kinds of things that were taking me bad places fast and like and, what like what you were like a teenager doing drugs and stuff uh, like that typical yeah I mean not to it's, you know it's all it all ends up in the book in one way or another but not to you know the specifics don't matter let's say it's just the typical you know teenage stuff but for for me I felt you know I felt kind of endangered and um and you know maybe this relates to that kind of um need to keep the, uh, you know, the things that lead to compulsions out, out of the house. But, um, I was just on fire for poetry. Like that was, you know, how, by that how point, old were you? How old were you when this was happening? Uh, you know, 15, 14, 15, 16. Um, and it was and, like, and it was like serious poetry. Like this isn't like, you know, you weren't like, oh, it was all of it. I mean, I think it started with, you know, it probably started with, I don't know what it started with, actually. You know, I remember reading Allen Ginsberg really vividly, but I remember reading, you know, in the textbooks in school, like Tennyson's In Memoriam, or, you know, a portion of In Memoriam, um, or, you know, reading Keats. Um, I remember reading Whitman, um, you know, and just feeling like this is it. And in parallel with that, cause I felt like a lot of, you know, I'd, I'd sort of like, I'd read all of the wonderful literature for young people. And then I'd sort of felt like in some way the grown up novel, like didn't belong to me. Like it belonged to my parents. Um, I don't want to reduce this experience to anything like, you know, Harold Bloomy or purely psychological because the phenomenon of being, you know, 
lit up by 30,000 volts of poetry is, is it's, it's too much to kind of, you know, pin it on any one thing. But looking back, I can say, you know, it's at least interesting to me that at that point I wasn't reading, you know, Faulkner. I wasn't reading Henry James. I wasn't reading, you know, things that my parents, you know, might've had on the shelf or might've taught. I was, you know, I was like, poetry is my thing. And music, you know, also felt like my thing. And where poetry and music seemed to meet up to me was punk rock. And there was this... Why? 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 Because there was something about the idea of a person, you know, a guy or a girl who, who could be 17, could be 16, picking up a pen or pencil and putting it down on a piece of paper in the grip of some kind of very visceral feeling and, you know, possibly within an hour, you know, having something pathbreaking, you know, completely fresh, um, riven out of nothing. I mean, Whitman is like, you know, he's inventing American an American voice, you know, so like, so is Emily Dickinson. Um, I would, I would come to feel later. Um, and you know, there's nothing prosaic about punk rock. Like, you know, one of the famous and actually not true orthodoxies of punk is like, you know, less hi-hat, you know, like don't use the, don't use the the hi-hat, don't use the crash symbol or whatever. Like a lot of what goes into prose is like the hi-hats and crash symbols of, of the language, you know? the kind of um the kind of filigree that 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 holds together things of greater complexity but you know poetry you just it's like even if it's ornate it's very stripped down somehow i mean yeah. I don't, i'm just i this is all i'm just pontificating no, I, I haven't no you're, I haven't t- you're talking you're talking about it better than most people probably could and um i get it i mean it's just it's it's especially at that age you know when you're hormonal and adolescent um you know, uh, like that kind of music and a lot of poetry, um, it, it cuts through, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, I don't know. There's a lot of the, a lot of the, the ways that, that the romantics are like thinking about their poetry is actually kind of the obverse of thinking of it as like hormonal and adolescent. Um, to say that it's like hormonal and adolescent is a little bit, determine deterministic you know it's like uh what choice do these teenagers have but in fact you know i think for a lot of the romantics it's like no actually that's the moment when you're seeing and feeling things most clearly and everything else you know from like age 25 on is an accretion of deterministic stuff that's getting in the way of you just apprehending. Suddenly you're 41 years old eating weed Cheetos and just in a fog. <laughs> yeah, man. That's what I'm talking about. Although, you know, that purposeful derangement of the senses, it worked for, it worked for Rambeau. But um, anyway, you know, I don't know. This was a very, it's just, there's a flame that gets lit. And um, that flame remains to me deserving of respect and a veneration and um 
and and anyway, I mean, the, just the line between um, between poetry and punk seemed very thin to me, and the you know there had been this sort of canonical punk movement of you know there'd been the the kind of the L.A. punk scene, the New York punk scene, and the London punk scenes of the seventies, and all, you know like early eighties for LA and all the great music coming out of that. But to me, um, you know, in North Carolina, I, I was like not that far geographically from the, the DC punk scene that was still happening, the, you know, the post hardcore scene. And it had laid down these interesting tracks in all of these little towns with colleges. Um, you know, you would go into the record store and, and there would be, you know, traces, there'd be zines, there'd be seven inches, there'd be, you know, tapes and things that you could sort of follow. This kind of like, I don't know if this kind of analog underground network still exists or whether it's been kind of subsumed into the web. But for me, I was like, you know, here are, here are the people, like here are, are, you know, the people who feel this way, they're out there. And, um, so I ended up making some friends through that, through like, you know, sending letters, sending tapes, sending zines through the mail. And in the company of those friends, um, you know, at, at 17, so I, I started sort of driving up. I had this old beater of a car that my dad had given me. I, I think out of a sense, I think now out of a sense of like, partly of, you know, take this kid and, you know, go save yourself. Right. And, um, like how so, much, how much trouble were you in? Like, I mean, I understand, um, being a teenager and being disaffected and doing stupid shit, but like, were you, um, at an extreme degree of that? I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not, I just, I have a hard time thinking of that as a useful question for me to think about. Um, because what you're, that that's sort of you know those pain scales in the hospital yeah where they're like how bit, bad is it on a scale of one to nine and you're like i, I don't even know how to begin thinking <laughs> right like, compared to what you know maybe like, it's just i have an overactive imagination but like it's like shit this like really hurts but <laughs> man i can imagine and not i can imagine four times <laughs> and that's pretty much it's like something just doesn't compute for me because yeah. uh, these things are so subjective, you know. Yeah, yeah, everybody, yeah. everybody's, everybody has moments of their life in extremists somehow. But um, anyway, that's a polite way of saying I'm just going to punt. Um, but <laughs> I w- the more interesting thing to me, at least, is that I was, you know, I'd I'd found these people in D.C. and and we started making raids on New York um, from D.C. And that was uh, the mid-90s. And it was kind of like, you know, maybe after th- you know, three years into Giuliani. And I remember the first thing you'd see when you got off the bus at Port Authority. I mean, Port Authority Terminal then as now, the bus terminal. Um, I mean, I haven't been in a, in a couple of years, but like, I think this is true then as now. Port Authority bus terminal, it will always be 1976. (laughs) Right. You know, like that particular distinctive hot dog smell, you know, 
and the occasional crash of, you know, um, <laughs> she like abandoned shopping carts into the automatic doors or whatever. It's just Port Authority bus terminal never changes. And then you would walk out and you would see, the first thing you'd see was Peepo Land, Peep Land and Peepo Rama right across 8th Avenue. And this like totally blew my mind, you know, at, at 17. Um, it just felt like everything was right out on the surface. Yeah. Everything that, you know, in a small Southern town stays in the woods as it were is right out on the surface. Um, and, uh, you know, I was in, I was in, uh, Lisbon recently and it was like nine o'clock in the morning and I was out walking and someone came up, uh, and, and offered me drugs. And I was like, Wow, this is just like New York was. All that stuff is just right out there um, somehow in a great city. And and although in you know at that time in the mid-90s you could then look down 42nd Street and see like the glowing uh you know mane of the Lion King on the marquee, you know, for the Disney Broadway production the the tension between the two is still out there and you know running around with my friends you know on these long weekends it just felt like stepping into a poem and in fact like the miserably bad poetry that i'd been writing like suddenly after the first weekend i spent in new york there was a week after that where suddenly the poems that i was writing were became real. And then at the end of that week, I lost it. Like it just stopped. The mu- like the music wasn't going to play for me anymore, but I had this brief experience of like, Oh shit. Like that's what it's supposed to feel like. So the two were just always like really, really tied together in my mind, you know, writing, particularly the poetic side of writing and the inspirational, um, you know, the votive side of writing and the city in general and this city in particular, along with music, you know, along with youth and along with a particular set of tensions being written on the very surface of things, which I think, you know, the, the kind of I came to feel like that the that the kind of apathetic time for that the you know the moment when all of the 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 tensions like you know blazed up into crises was um the very period during which all of this punk music that I loved um was born, which was the mid seventies. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I think it was all sort of like sloshing around in the back of my head. Somehow. Yeah. No, it makes it, I mean, it puts it into context and makes it make total sense. You know, I guess like, you know, in a book this big where you've poured so much of, uh, yourself and your obsessions into it. Um, I'm always curious, you know, it seems like the logical thing to think would be that, you know, you do that and then you're kind of empty. You've said your piece about it, but, uh, with something like New York, 
uh, and like, you know, as deeply as it has its hooks into you, like, do you have another book where you're going to continue to explore it? Like, is it your muse or is it like just, you, you got it all out in this one and now you're on to other things? Uh, I, I mean, I, it, re, it remains to be seen, you know, um, there are a lot, I mean, one of the, th- my wife said something, I mean, so I should, I should, I guess I should just add that the book remain, you know, or the material, whatever you want to call it, the obsessions remained very much unconscious for me as I like turned in the, in the aftermath of my, you know, crashing as a poet to, to writing prose, writing, you know, short stories. Um, and then it was really after 2001, which was like the first year of my adult life, my life out of college that, and, and the kind of sudden casting of the city into the light of contingency into the light of something that's not eternal and not inexhaustible. That's something, but something that might very well have ceased to exist in 2001 that, that this idea, um, for the, for this particular book, um, this kind of, you know, bleak house, you know, but with a punk rock soundtrack came, came into existence. And that's really why I don't, I never thought of it as a, as a historical novel, I always thought of it as like this book that was about everything that was blazingly urgent to me, you know, in 2001, 2002, 2000, well, and, and then and 2000, yeah. 2001 also, I mean, that's nine 11. I mean, uh, yeah, you're in, you're, a, you're in New York at that point. No, you- so I, I was in, I, I had kept failing to get to New York. Um, you know, I'd failed as a poet, uh, at 17, I failed to, um, go uh, to be able to go to college here. I didn't, you know, we didn't have the money. Um, I felt like, and, um, so, you know, Columbia, as far as I know, you know, was like strictly, you know, you had to take out, I go to the university of North Carolina for 700 bucks a semester, you know, Columbia or NYU is going to require like massive amounts of loans. Um, I remember looking at Fordham and like getting locked on this somehow in my attempt to get to Fordham, getting like locked on a subway train at like 242nd street at the end of the line or something. Um, so I'd failed for college. And then after college, the plan was to move to New York. You know, so many of my friends had moved there. Um, and, uh, my wife got into graduate school at Columbia, but she couldn't afford that. Um, compared to university of Maryland, which gave her a fellowship. So we ended up in DC and I was like, well, at least it's close. Like at least I can drive up on weekends and we'll camp out here for three years while my wife finishes her coursework. And then we'll finally, you know, move to New York and life will begin. And that was the summer of 2001 that we moved. And so, you know, that fall was like, uh, it was just, it was like watching the future, like, disappear and be replaced with something else. And, it, you know, and I don't know, that sounds glib to me, actually. It was like, 
It was mainly like watching. I was right there with you. I thought that was perfect, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, but I mean, the main thing is that it was watching, you know, a, a mass murder. Yeah. And it was watching thousands of lives, like, just go. And impossibly, impossibly go. And I think there's a part of me that feels like that belongs so much more, even though, of course, D.C. was under attack, too. And, you know, we we got evacuated, by, like, after watching the, you know, the, the horror on TV. Like, we got evacuated from work uh, in, in the Watergate building, which is where I worked. And I'd been working, it was my first adult job. I'd been there six weeks. And walking home and not being able to get a cell phone signal and the like secret service siren screaming and nobody knowing what the hell was going on or like if the world would be there tomorrow, you know? Yeah. It was just really, so in in a, in a way I feel like the grief and the right to speak about it belongs most of all to people who are not me. You know, to people who lost someone closer than a friend's cousin, you know, right. or who, you know, who were, you know, friends who were, you know, on the R train, you know, like under City Hall. Um, but so I'm, I don't know, it makes me a little nervous to like talk about it, but no, but it had, but it's a collective experience. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It was, it's a, it was a massive um, a massively affecting experience that everybody shared in, you know, an attack on the country. Like, I think it goes beyond just like somebody else's trauma. Like we all sort of shared in that trauma. We all witnessed it, you know, and there's a certain kind of like awakening that seemed to me to happen in, in the aftermath. And I, you know, I, I remember starting to come drive up on weekends, um, to, so I quit my job uh, I, and went to teach elementary school because I had this idea that, like, like I, I, you know, really, in some ways, it felt like a near-death experience. Um, and and I don't, I, I mean, in, in the way that it might have for like hundreds of thousands of people, you know right. what I mean? Sure, like, yeah. You're like, this thing is impossible, and it's just happened, and now we're walking through the streets, unable to find out how many planes there are. Like, where does this, where are the limits? Am I going to, you know, where's the person I care about most? Is she all right? You know, are we ever going to see each other again? Like, it was just, it was so, there was this moment of like, just not knowing what was going on and the stakes seeming unfathomably high. And I started making these trips up to New York on the weekends again, like I did, like I had in high school. And I I remember just feeling like with, you know, within all of the return to ordinary life was this like sense of alertness, you know, and, and attunement, um, that you would feel from people. Um, you know, because even though there were a lot of contexts in which you wouldn't, talk about it exactly you'd still be 
you know, out of the bar at 3 a.m. and you'd catch someone's eye and you'd know they were thinking about it and they'd know you were. And it was just like a moment of really, really seeing. Yeah. And that seemed to me to be really, really important and really fragile and somehow related to like what it meant so much to me about poetry, you know, to seeing the world as it really is. And in DC, like that feeling closed down faster. I felt like it became, like everything became about, you know, everything turned rancorous and political and, um, politics has its place, but like, it felt like the wars really shut down the openness almost as if that was like part of what they were for. But in New York, like even into, into 2003, which is, you know, when, when my wife and I, then girlfriend, now wife and I started preparing to actually move here, that there was still this like alertness and this attunement and, you know, the tension between that, you know, so much destruction and so much life um, was, you know, was something that was trying to, like, I was trying to find expression for. I was trying to, like, witness. So were you, were you working on uh, your book? Like, when did, when did it begin? Cause it's no, I was writing short stories. Um, so in November of 2001, maybe it was October, um, I think it was November, the same thing that had happened to me with poetry started to happen with prose fiction. I'd been like writing stories for several years and, you know, they just, they weren't alive. And then somehow, you know, that fall, it's like I wasn't writing about any of these events, right? Like they, I was writing about other stuff, but like somehow the writing became, it was like knocking around on like a shallow surface. And then suddenly you hit a spot and you hear this deep resonant boom. And so I had been writing short stories and, um, I was teaching elementary school, you know, I'd taken this big pay cut to do that. My wife was like working, she was like walking dogs, you know, tutoring, doing all this. It was just, it was funny. I mean, it was, it was what you do when you're 22, 23. And I would get home from teaching and I would brew, brew a pot of coffee or drink, slam a cup of coffee, lie down and take a nap. And then when the caffeine jolted me awake, like 20 minutes later, I would sit down and start writing pretending I was like trying to trick my body into thinking it was morning and I would write for like three hours and then I would just be, you know, a mess afterwards. And after a couple of years of this, I felt like I couldn't sustain that anymore. Um, or, <laughs> or like my friends and family weren't going to be able to sustain <laughs> right. you know, the monster I had become. And so I figured I would, I would apply for graduate school in New York. Um, to writing programs. I'd always had sort of a chip on my shoulder about writing programs, you know, this kind of like, you know, yeah, Keats didn't go to a writing program. Right. Right. 
thing, but I was really pragmatic about it. I was like, you know, if, if I can get paid, if they will give me a stipend to write for two years, you know, not have a day job. You know, teaching second grade is like a real freaking day job. Yeah. Like you, you feel it at the end of the day. And I was like, you know, maybe if I can have this time to write, then, you know, I can see this work through to completion. Well, that's okay. what it, that's what it is though. That I always argue this when it comes to writing programs in graduate school, it's time. It's a, like, it's a place to hide and write. But to be, but to be, you know, totally frank with you as someone who's taught in writing programs too, you know, the money is a part of that. Like if you have to pay the equivalent of a year's salary in exchange for that time, you're twice in the hole. Right. And so that's where I have a problem with it that almost rises to the level of the ethical. And I think about all of the people who can't afford that and who might have the, you know, who might be in contact with the flame. Right. So, you know, I had very mixed feelings about that. But the trick, I mean, I'll just say this, like the advice that I would give to anyone um, and which I used to give to my undergrads. And I taught them, it's like, if you really want to do this, go out in the world, like work as long as you can at something else until you can't keep up the writing anymore. And then make a list of the places that might pay you because they are out there. Um, and I don't know. I just feel like that's, you know, it's like one of the few fellowships that exists for like a writer who's just starting out. So where did so where did you go? I went to NYU. Okay. Um and I so I was on this bus uh up to the city in the summer of two thousand three to basically scope out, you know, places to live. And um I happened to be passing the you know, I, I was at the same spot on the New Jersey Turnpike on the same bus that I'd been on as a teenager where you first see the skyline and in the perspective is very much, um, funnily enough, like, you know, the, the first sighting of Oz in the wizard of Oz, it's like almost exactly the same composition out the window of a bus. And, um, I'd been making these trips up, but they'd been, I'd been driving at night because I was working all day. And so I'd get off on a Friday and drive up at night, but this was daytime because it was summer and I was off teaching and, you know, I, this it's the same time of day. I used to make these trips up as a teenager cutting school. And, uh, I looked out the window and, you know, I just saw the skyline that it always seemed to be speaking to me, you know, and, and saying, you know, you're here. Um, this is where you belong. And, and now it was missing. It's, highest point and you know, it's kind of an organizing feature because you're coming from the south and um it always looked to me sort of like you know a two-masted scooter with you know midtown 34th street being like one mast and the financial district being the other and now one of the masts was missing and the image didn't work and and the whole thing just seemed disorganized and in chaos. And at just that moment, I had my iPod in 
which probably, you know, was meant to pull up some Fugazi or whatever I was listening to in high school, some Patti Smith. They're like, you too, a sort of homecoming. And instead I got Billy Joel. <laughs> which which, which know, song? Which song? Uh, I, it, it's a song called Miami 2017. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about, uh, it's a science fiction song looking back from the year 2017 at the New York of the mid seventies, you know, the punk rock New York. Oh, wow. You know, the fire shooting up from the manholes, New York. Yeah. And the trash, the trash cans going through shop windows, New the, York. So this is like the origin story of your novel. I mean, really and at that moment, it like, you know, I've, I've told this story. Um, I'm ashamed to say now, like many times, but you get the question. It's like in, in the space of, you know, time that it took for that song to play i remember thinking like you know that that time is this time like all of the tensions between order and chaos and safety and vulnerability and destruction and creation and death and life that were like so foregrounded you know in 2001 2002 2003 are the very ones that were so foregrounded in, you know, the period that Patti Smith and television Ramones are singing about. Yeah. And that somehow, you know, everything that wants to find expression through me about this time is going to come out in a story of then. And I thought like, holy shit, that's a book. There you go. And then I thought that's a, huge book yeah right <laughs> it's not it's not that you know like the, the book is often described in, uh in reviews and uh in terms of its ambitions you know it's an ambitious thing to take on um to write about a time in which you didn't live um to deal with that many characters and the scope of all that that entails like did you ever get overwhelmed did you ever quit did you ever oh i quit right away i mean i got off the bus i mean i had this whole thing like shooting through my motherboard, you know, melting the fucker down. Um, you know, I was seeing these people and I was seeing, you know, certain events that are in the books, but it was all this like hot, like mass of things that were all tangled together. And I knew, you know, I had, I had had this thought that this was like bleak house, you know, this is like the structure of bleak house, the architecture of it. And, you know, there's smarter and more elegant ways of rendering a city in prose than to like actually try to build one. But I'm just not that smart or elegant. <laughs> but what I got was real scared. I was like, you know, I sat down and I wrote a page like feverishly. I was supposed to call my friend um, who I was staying with and tell him I was, you know, I'd arrived. And instead I went to Union Square and I sat down and I just scribbled out this scene and it was like I felt like my hand was going to melt and I thought what the hell am I doing I'm 24 years old you know I never questioned somehow that I could write about you know I never questioned for some reason my like the possession of the material I just thought I'm 24 years old I'm a nobody I don't have the chops to do this you know do people even write books like this anymore you know like it was just sort of like the era of the, you know, 
maybe it still is like of the 275 page, like coming of age. Book. Yeah, yeah, I wrote one of those. <laughs> I think I was too young, you know, to quite free myself of like the, of what seemed attainable. Right. Um, I had betrayed in some sense, like the 17 year old I was by, you know, by the seductions of the attainable. But I, you know, I put it in a drawer and I said, maybe I'll come back to this page like 10 years down the road. Maybe I'll be like writer enough to not completely screw it up or to not completely get destroyed by it. And, you know, I spent four more years, you know, writing things which meant stuff to me. And, you know, some of that stuff got published, you know, short stories and whatnot. But I got to a point where I like, realized, I think I was probably 28 or just, maybe I was 27 about to turn 28. I just realized like, wait a minute, you know, the whole point of doing this is to be doing, you know, the thing you'd write if you wrote nothing else, you know, if you were going to die tomorrow, what would you want to be working on today? And I didn't even have to think about what the answer to that question was. And I just thought, all of a sudden, wait a minute, the fact that this is impossible is exactly why I should be doing it. Like, it'll never be published. So I don't have to worry about that. You know, this is this is the most punk rock thing I can think to do. <laughs> it, like, it, it's just completely apart from, you know, all of the, all of the kind of, mechanisms that maybe the writing program brings you into contact with, you know, it's just, it's something that becomes completely free somehow. Um, so the whole time I was writing the first draft well into the second, maybe I was just like, it never seemed like a publishable project. When did it, when did that change? Like, let's like, you know, because I don't want to run out of time and I want to ask you about the, uh, that point, like the end game in terms of getting into the marketplace with it and, and sending it out and getting an agent and all that kind of stuff. Because um, this is a book that has had uh, an unusually good ride for a debut, both critically and commercially. Um, like when did it start to shift? I mean, you, you had it in your head that this thing wasn't publishable. When did it start to feel possible? And then, Well, I mean, look, look, like I, I had it in my head that it wasn't publishable. I had... I had and have a healthy suspicion of publishability and, you know, the idea of the marketplace, you, you know, is rings all kinds of, you know, problematic bells for me. So I, I you know, that I had kind of like gotten to this point where I really, you know, I wasn't interested in that. I was never that interested in that, you know, but, but, but you, you get into this thing, you know, when you're, you go to a writing program and, and it's like, you get finish a short story. It's like, what should I do with this? Like someone should read it, send out short stories and maybe someone publishes them. So you start to, you know, you start to make your peace with the marketplace, but it, but it creeps in, you know, it's like it, it can get in your head. And, and I was having, I felt like I was a better writer with it, not in my head and a better human being. And maybe we're all like better human beings without the marketplace in our heads. Yeah. But, um, I showed, 
I think I worked on it for like three years and you know, my wife knew I was doing something. <laughs> she knew I would have this kind of like uh, moods at the end of the day. Um, so this is after graduate school. I, I spent a year pouring coffee and living off a fellowship from the state of New York. It had given me a kind of a small fellowship. And I learned to live really cheaply, um, which seemed to me an essential part of the writer's art, you know? Um, like I feel like, you know, there's something just great about being able to live on spaghetti and being able to like not have anyone know what you're working on, you know, the freedom of that. Yeah. And there may be two people who knew, um, and I think they both lived abroad, you know, who knew a one sentence, like I'm working on a book about, and then uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child. It was right around maybe the end of the first draft. And I showed her the first 150 pages. And because, you know, it's not like I cherish the idea of no one reading it. You know what I mean? But it's like readership in a very, like, idealistic sense, you know, sh- communication between human beings and also as a kind of apology and maybe as a, like, you know, I need some, something to keep going. I need my soul cycle trainer <laughs> right? and the way, you know, her response I had, you know, at that point, many, many pages, but her response, the first 150s for the first movement of the book was such that I thought, I don't know. It gave me what I needed to keep going. Was she, was she effusive? It wasn't that she was effusive. It was that she related to it the way she relates to real books that she's really engaged with, you know? Yeah. Like she wanted to like talk about it. Like we were in a book club. That's a good, that's a good sign. Oh my God. I can't believe this happened. And then she would turn to me and be like, wait a minute, you made that happen. And I would be like, well, I didn't really make it happen. Like, you know, some, something came to me at some point and, and made it happen. But, um, so then I, you know, so then we had a, a, a baby, which really made, you know, totally upended my writing life. But I, I was a maniac and I spent, you know, three more years, revising. And I think I just always thought, you know, I need to take this as far as I can go by myself. I need to make this as good as I can by myself. So, you know, draft after draft after draft, um, cut, 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 cut. I guess surprise people to hear this probably, but you know, there's like, I cut like 400 pages. That would, I always was going to write long. <laughs> you cut, you cut 4,200 pages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, but I always thought, you know, I wanted it to be overflowing. I wanted it to be what the city is to me, which is right up against the edge of too much to make sense of like one heartbeat away from total chaos, from just from overwhelming you from overwhelming the meaning circuits 
And the way to do that, I thought, was to write beyond the boundaries and then to cut back and try to find them and then to leave like one degree more. <laughs> yeah. You know, that makes sense. Um, but to create an effect of infinitude without, in fact, going on forever. So I cut, you know, I cut, 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 cut. Wait a minute. How does this connect to this? No, no, no. This is bogus. So a lot of revision. And then I got to this point where I was like, well, I, I have now taken this as far as I can go on my own. And I, I just don't, I don't know where else to take it. And then I had this idea of like, well, maybe, you know, maybe something, maybe there's a way of making the marketplace work for me rather than vice versa, which is to say, like, maybe someone will, you know, allow me to have some more time and some more ideas about how to make this better. Um, how did, cause I, cause I still felt like it was like one or two drafts away from being from like me getting all the way through the marble to like the thing that was underneath, you know? Yeah. Like it was close, like it, it was close, but I was like, I can't see, I don't know where the, you know? So what, I, so what did you do? So I, uh, Okay, so I've, I've figured out, all right, I need an agent. Um, I probably need, like, a good agent. Um, because, you know, a good agent will be a good reader who can tell you those things, and maybe a good agent will be able with what still at that point seemed like, like, listen, to be honest with you, this is, I'm talking like 2012, I wasn't looking around and seeing you know, a lot of like 800, 900 page novels, you know, like on the shelves. And those are the kinds of books that I like, that I love to read. I mean, when I'm in a world, you know, sometimes you, I just want it to keep going. Um, you know, there's always been Anna Karenina, you know, Brothers Karamazov, um, 1Q84 even. Um, which I guess is maybe it came out in 2013, but, um, so I thought, well, you know, a good, it would have to be a good agent who could like convince someone to like read this manuscript, you know, an editor who might be able to, to work with me on it. Um, and so I kind of like, I don't know, how did I do that? I was like, it's kind of like applying for college. You know, I, I never had the resources. I think I applied to like four colleges, which you'd never do now. And similarly, I was like, I just, I'm going to just pick three agents who like I hear are good and then see how that works. And I sent it out and, um, you know, through that, through kind of talking to people about this, you know, the manuscript, it becomes clear, like, kind of who you're simpatico with. And, um, and one of the things that I was really looking for in an agent was someone who would take a lot of the non-writing stuff off my desk. Um, I'm just not very organized and I don't want to be, I don't have any great ambition to be like that organized. And 
I don't want to have to like sweat a lot of decisions that I don't have enough information or expertise to make. And so the agent I wound up with, you know, which is whom, which is whom, uh, which is a a guy named Chris Paris lamb. Oh, he's been a guest on this program. Yes, he has. I have. Yeah. Um, but you know, Chris, a fellow, fellow North Carolina boy, right? Yeah, I met him at a wedding, actually, which so it was like a couple of people over the transom and through the slush pile. And then Chris, I had met at a wedding. Um, my wife's friend was marrying his friend, just oddly enough. And we were seated together. I, I think my wife's friend might have been trying to play matchmaker. But anyway, we, you know, we hit it off and his stand, his maniacal standards are similar to mine but he knows all kinds of stuff that I don't, you know, which is the, the publishing side of stuff and the marketplace side. So honestly, from the point at which, you know, Chris, you know, took on the manuscript and, and he gave me some really good notes, I thought, of which I took about half and ran in the opposite direction from the other half. But sometimes you wind up kind of solving a problem by running in the opposite direction as well. Sure. But, but, um, you know, the publishing stuff, the marketplace stuff, like, because it was Chris, like, honestly, I don't really know about, like, the details are very hazy to me. Um, because part of what I said was like, I don't, you know, I just deal me out. Like, I'm not that, I just don't, I'm not the kind of person who can, who's going to have a healthy kind of, um, degree of compartmentalization about this. I need you to just like, he was like, so you know yourself, this goes back to like having a dumb phone and like not having a flat screen. And you know what I'm saying? Like, you know yourself, you're like, I can't do this. If I start getting involved in this, it's going to be a quagmire. I'm going to imagine life is life is all about like figuring out what you can control and what you can't. And I am a person who tends to want to control, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, kind of a control freak. I mean, I think it's like an occupational hazard and I can easily get into situations where I'm trying to like control, not necessarily through like making noise, but through all kinds of magical thinking, you know what I mean? Sure. Um, like maybe if I touch the doorknob three times this time, <laughs> you know, and I, and at that point, like I, you know, I wanted it, I wanted it to find an editor. Like I wanted, you know, no one wants, you don't want it to like, come back and be like, yeah, everybody thought this sucked. So Chris was like, you know, I'm sending this out. Like, do you want what, what level of, you know, input do you want? I think it's like October, like how much you want me to update you? And I was like, the people ask you to update them. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, those people are crazy. (laughs) Or alternatively, those people are way saner than I am. I said, like, call me, you know, let me know if it hasn't sold by Christmas. You know, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions before Christmas. If I haven't heard anything by Christmas, you know, I'll know it hasn't sold. When was this? What was like this went out in what the fall? This went out in October. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you already say that or did, am I, uh, I'm not, I think I did. Okay. But, um, and it's, then it's the, it's the weed Cheetos, man. <laughs> and it's a long, you know, it's a long, it's a long book. Uh, also. Yeah. And, and, you know, my experience, that was how long it took agents to read. And I, I, I don't know. I was just very, I think I was kind of naive about it. 
And um, then, you know, in very weirdly short order, a lot of all kinds of very weird things started to happen. And, um, you know, I don't know the rest uh, I'm sure has been written down somewhere out there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's like the dream, you know, or at least that's one dream. And, uh, it it is, I, the, this is a strange thing, but it's like, I was so secure, like the book, and life had taught me so much about what the dream actually is that, you know, it remains slightly forgettable. Like you can get caught up in, in stuff, but like, it's, it's really like driven pretty far deep into my soul at this point. You know, I'm just picturing like a massive anvil, like banging on a railroad spike or something. The dream is like the dream involves being read of course but the dream is so much about the feeling at the desk right and what is required to make that happen and to make that keep happening that i really felt like a lot of the stuff that happened you know that might seem dreamlike to others really wasn't my dream. It wasn't my, it was somebody's dream. Maybe that, maybe that's why it happened. You know, my, my dream is like, you know, you call up the guy whose parents are out of town. It's like, are your, is your basement free to play? We're going to come play. You know, you make the flyers, you turn the kids out. We're going to get up there and crank our amps up to 11. And ideally by the end of the night, the line between performer and audience has become completely obliterated, you know, in a, a sweaty, overamplified mess. You know, that's the dream. You know, the dream is is to be playing. And um, I'm I'm saying this like it it sounds like you know pontifically, but in fact, I'm kind of saying this because this is like the soul cycle pep talk. No, it's like aspirational. You know, I get it. I give it to myself. Sure. You know, I feel myself getting caught up. Um, honestly, like if I swore, if I drop, I work for like three hours, you know, before I have to drop the kids off in the morning and then I drop them off and that's like a break. If I swerve into the coffee shop on the way back home, cause I'm tired and I happen, there happens to be a newspaper on the table and it's like, you know, there's, a small but statistically significant probability that Donald Trump will be your president in the fall. Like I will get caught up in that shit. <laughs> oh, you know, dude, dude, it's very hard to get back to the desk. And so I give myself these little, you know, talks. Yeah. It's like, yeah. but, but you know, the dream that every writer fights for is, does not have, um, it, it does. It doesn't have, or it shouldn't have, a price tag on it. Um, you know, and it and it shouldn't. And and honest, and just because, you know, there are there are books that I know and love, contemporary books and older books, that you know, you use that term "ride," which seems like a term of the marketplace to me. Like I can almost hear the oleaginous, you know, um, slide of. Uh, you know the the widgets through the factory, but um, 
there are many books that like don't get that ride or that that get the ride like after the author's dead or whatever the dreaded posthumous ride <laughs> right well i don't know man yeah yes yeah. would you rather be like um you know someone who gets the posthumous ride or that someone no one reads after you die uh, yeah no no plus yeah it's like it's like a, it's an afterlife it's an afterlife i mean it's just it's just funny in the sense that like you wouldn't know about it <laughs> i'm actually you know i'm actually very suspicious that like getting any kind of Prehumus ride means you're guaranteed not to get a posthumous ride, and and you're writing for posterity, I think. But um, but anyway, I mean, I just think the dream. You know, I, I I would hate for any writer to mistake the the presence of a ride for you know confirmation that the dream has come true or not, if that makes sense. No, I get it. Like that's healthy uh, thinking. You're a healthy minded, uh, writer, human being. It's a, it's a, it's a hard one. It's a hard one health. And, and I'm putting on a good healthy show for you. I'm sure. I'm a display of good health, like Hillary Clinton. You know, <laughs> so, apparently I don't know, I don't know what the hell is going on, man. That newspaper, I got to get away from it. No, you're talking to somebody who's like obsessively consuming uh, cable news and uh, Twitter news. And uh, ask anybody who follows me on Twitter. It's obnoxious. Like I'm obsessed with the political situation. Yeah. Um, but listen, man, uh, I, I think like I felt like what you were saying there is a great place for us to uh, wrap up. It's like a great final note. Uh, you know, you had this kind of ecstatic creative experience or at least, it, you know, at times, it was ecstatic. That's the only way I think you could probably sustain. Yeah, it's like 1% ecstasy and 99% pulling my but hair it's, it, But it's like golf, you know? You have like 1% where you're actually... 1% hit- weed Cheeto. Yeah. <laughs> 99% weed Cheeto hangover. But, but man, was the weed Cheeto sweet. When it's working for you, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but no, but I mean, and then to get to the point where things start to go well for the book uh, in the sales process and in the publication process and to to point out as you did that there is a distinction between that and what we're really after and what we really should be after, I think is creative people, um, is a really wise place to stop and like a really wise note to sound and a great place to stop. Cool. Well, thanks man. Yeah, no, it's a, it's (laughs) great, great to talk to you and congratulations on everything. Are you working on another book? I guess you are, huh? Um, my lips are sealed, but you know, I just, I got to chase that weed Cheeto. There we go. <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, uh, best of luck. Uh, and, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens for you next. Okay. Thanks. All right, guys, there you go. That's Garth Risk Holberg, his novel City on Fire, available now from Vintage in Trade Paperback. You can find out more at GarthRiskHolberg.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Everything except for uh, this song, which is Buena Vista Social Club. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. Go to the app store of your choosing, of your choice, and uh, type in Other People with Brad Listy. Find the app. The app is free. Best way to listen. You can also sign up for a premium subscription, get access to everything right there within the app. You get the most recent 50 shows for free. And then if you want more than the most recent 50, if you want to get into the deeper archives, you sign up for premium. 
uh, $0.75 a month. Gets you access to everything. It's glorious. So yeah, the reason I'm uh, playing uh, Buena Vista Social Club is that I was feeling nostalgic. I was flipping through my iTunes and I was like, oh man. I think that's the best concert I ever saw. Which I may have uh, mentioned in conversation on this program before. But it's the only concert I've ever been to that genuinely brought me to tears. And I think, uh, like upon reflection that the reason it was so uh, emotionally loaded is because the uh, show was, uh, there was a palpable sense of time in a way that most concerts never deliver, never could deliver. You had these guys, um, I think all of whom were in their eighties or older from Cuba who never thought they were ever going to get their shot. They'd given up uh, any hope of that decades ago, probably. And then here they were doing a tour of uh, the United States, selling out venues, rapturous applause. And, uh, there was a sense of time lost. There was a sense of time running out. It was very cute. I just said acute, not cute. It was also cute. It was cute to see, uh, Ibrahim Ferrier. I think that was his name, the lead singer in his, uh, Kangle dancing. Ruben Gonzalez, I think, is the piano player that you're listening to now. He was adorable. Please remember that Graham Greene never learned how to drive a car and that Jane Ellen Harrison was proficient in 14 languages. Uh, that is all for now. Thank you to Garth Risk Holberg. Go get City on Fire. Thanks to you guys for listening. I will be back next week, hopefully on time, in my usual Wednesday slot. Uh, I'm assuming that's going to happen. Stay tuned. I'll talk to you soon.